Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Roy Green Show podcast. Hello, everybody. On today's podcast, following the horror of the attacks on two mosques in New Zealand and the murders of 50 Muslims and the wounding of many more, I spoke with the Imam of Peace. He joined us from Australia. And you'll hear what he had to say. Also today, the grounding of the Boeing MAX aircraft and the questions demanding complete answers. Raymond Hall is a former Air Canada captain and lawyer. He's been looking into this very, very closely, and he shared his thoughts with us. Brexit, what a mess. UK in turmoil over fulfilling the mandate of the people delivered in the referendum three years ago. Alan Sked is Professor Emeritus of the London School of Economics. He's also the founder of UKIP, the political party which gave rise to the Brexit referendum. Professor Sked is not happy with the way things are turning out. And there was a Pew poll, international poll, of people in 18 nations about immigration and their views on immigration. Canadians are very favorably disposed. Richard Curlin is a Vancouver immigration lawyer and has advised both the federal and Quebec governments on matters of immigration. You'll hear Mr. Curlin. That's some of what was on today's show. I got in touch with Imam Mohammed Tawhidi. He's known on uh, on Twitter. His Twitter uh, address is uh, at the Imam of Peace, at Imam of Peace, and his website is imamtawhidi.com. And we spoke with him last October, and the Imam is back with us on this program. He knows this country well. He spends a lot of a lot of time in Canada, and uh, joining us from Adelaide, Australia. Imam, thank you so much for the time. Greetings, sir, and thank you very much for having me. Imam, how do, how do you how do you assess uh, where do we begin when we speak about such a monstrous act? And condolences to you and all Muslims on the loss of your fellow uh, believers. Where do we begin when speaking about such a monstrous act of intended cruelty and violence, which is directed at one group of people? Where do we begin? Well, thank you very much uh, for your condolences. I would like to be very clear uh, regarding this issue because really we don't, we cannot afford to uh, ignore the main cause behind all of this, and that is that we have extremists in every society, in every group of people, in every community, in every religion. There are some extremists, and these extremists act violently regarding people from their own faith and also people from outside the faith. We have them in Islam, we have them in Christianity, we have uh, atheists who are extreme in their views. And, uh, you know, I think now is the best time for us to unite as human beings, uh, not as Muslims, not as Christians, but as human beings. All of us should unite against extremism and terrorism in all of its sorts. You know, I, I had that I had that same thought. I, we we have there are moments in in history, there are times in history, and people call them snapshots at times. But I, moments in history where you have an opportunity to do something positive, where you have an opportunity to take a step forward, or you can stay in place, or you can take a step backward. And I think this is one of those times where we can we we can step forward together. How, how do we do that? Indeed. Well, it's very easy to step forward if we really want to step forward. I mean, uh, I really appreciate how our government has handled this issue. Um, Firstly, there's been a ban on all of these uh, weapons by the New Zealand government. The Australian government, within the first hour, acknowledged it as a terrorist attack. And that is a very big uh, decision to make. It wasn't just a... A, uh, an incident or an event, as uh, some people might uh, call it, uh, the prime minister clearly labelled the person a uh, a terrorist. 
which was something very uh, important for this whole debate and also the media that was going to cover it. Uh, we see a lot of uh, outreach, a lot of interfaith uh, solidarity groups uh, moving forward. This also gives uh, the Muslims the opportunity to learn as to how uh, the rest of society would appreciate for them and us to react whenever something happens to the Christians or the Jewish people. Uh, these are all lessons that we pick up in life. Uh, every community has something to offer, and we have to learn from each other. So we've seen some really great um, outreach from the Christian community, from the Jewish community, and we really do appreciate that. The uh, it, it, It's so true that, that people do look for support and sometimes to look for support from from uh, people outside your own if you will identifiable group you know you'll get the res- the support from people within your group but if you get support from people outside your own group that means a tremendous amount and it creates the it, it creates the opportunity and it creates i think also the dynamic for moving forward together so the next time you're not dealing with a stranger you're dealing with somebody you know has already supported you Indeed. I mean, we've seen this throughout uh, recent times when uh, churches get attacked, synagogues get attacked, uh, you know, whether they be uh, by extremists from uh, who have no religion or just people who wish to uh, change the political narrative or control the political narrative, or whether it by extremists from any religion. We see uh, Muslims protecting churches, protecting synagogues, and now we're seeing the same. We see uh, Christians who are uh, coming to protect uh, the mosques. We have the Prime Minister of New Zealand that has offered to uh, pay for the uh, funerals and cover all costs. I mean, there's some wonderful humanity that we are living right now in this region, and uh, and I'm really glad that there's a lot of coverage happening because this is exactly what we need. All of us are human beings before we are, uh, you know, adherence to a particular religion. Uh, we see this come out now uh, in Australia, in New Zealand, and in the, the surrounding uh, islands. Uh, it's, it's very, very, uh, you know, there is really no word to explain this. It just makes us so happy that, yes, we, we did migrate to Australia, but look, at the end of the day, these people have opened their hearts, they've embraced us, and in times of tragedy, uh, we see uh, a different white man, if I can say this. I mean, uh, I am a man of, of color, and I've migrated to uh, practically the West to live under a democracy uh, for a better life. And many people have been, uh, you know, making documentaries saying that Australians are racist, uh, Australia is a racist country. But when this, in, when this attack took place, we've seen so many, uh, let's say, uh, methods of love and care and support and solidarity from the Australian people, from the New Zealand people. Uh, the humanity that we've been living in this uh, since Friday is something we can really never, ever describe unless you live it personally. Yes, and and uh, Imam Tawhidi Australia, of course, had the unfortunately had the spotlight placed on it because the the suspect uh, is from Australia. So, but I understand immediately his family stepped forward and offered to provide assistance. But people are looking at Australia, and uh, and and you, what do you say to people who who point? I mean, you've just spoken about the country, but to people who specifically point at Australia with a, and have a negative point of view, what do you say to that person directly? Australia is not a racist country. Australia has a wonderful, large, tolerant majority. Uh, Australia has stood in solidarity with victims of all forms of terrorism uh, throughout time, throughout history. We as a country, we have a wonderful record of opposing Islamic extremism, opposing Christian extremism, opposing any form of terrorism. We have served overseas against ISIS. Uh, this country has a wonderful proven record, and our government has taken a very serious step uh, against this uh, attacker. And also, uh, the parliament has taken serious uh, acts of condemnation against senators and politicians who are cheering and supporting uh, this attack uh, through uh, provocative statements or through uh, comments in the media that are not helpful at this time. No, I, I saw something of that. Uh, and uh, Imam, there's been a lot said about 
white nationalism. There's been a lot said about radicalization. Canadians are very concerned about those issues, and there's been a lot said and written, and particularly in the last number of days, about the president of the United States and the tone that he sets. What do you say to all of that? I think that the media is trying to politicize this tragic event all the way in New Zealand uh, by scoring political points against the president of the United States. Because that's all they care about, how to bring this man down. And any event in history uh, that take, takes place, they try to somehow uh, link him to it. Uh, and, you know, they have their ways of doing so. Now, that's fine. That's their agenda. That's their uh, belief system. That's where their loyalty lies. However, we say, uh, don't do this to uh, children that have been uh, shot dead by a terrorist. Don't do this to uh, poor and innocent women. They deserve better than this. Uh, firstly, Donald Trump has absolutely nothing to do with what took place uh, in New Zealand. Uh, the terrorist himself had a manifesto written already. He was planning this for two years, way before Donald Trump was actually in office. He had admitted this in, by himself, that he was planning to do this for two years. And also, he did not want this to happen in New Zealand, but, you know, he chose to at the end of the day. Uh, it's a, it's a, look, now we have two tragedies. The first tragedy is the fact that this terrorist attack took place. And the second tragedy is how some journalists, and not all of them, just some of them, a minority, are trying their best to politicize this to score political points. And that is something we should stand against. Yeah, when you look at this country, and you know Canada well, you spend a lot of time here. When you look at this yes. country, what do you see? What do you... What is your takeaway from uh, from who we are, what we do, how we get along, and how we can how we can continue to to thrive as a people? I try to be as honest as I can, and uh, sometimes that really bothers people and also gets me into a bit of trouble. But I'll try and and just be as brief as I can regarding this issue. I honestly believe Canada can do a lot better government-wise. I do believe so. I believe Canada is a great country with great, strong, powerful, intellectual, smart people and leaders, and it has a proven record of that. And I think currently it can do a lot better prime minister-wise, government-wise, cabinet-wise. I mean, these issues that we hear as Australians uh, you know, I also travel around the world, so I, I spend a lot of time, because Australia is very far, I spend a lot of time in transit and airports, and I watch um, televisions that are in, in airports around the world, and whenever something happens regarding Canada, you look at the screen, and this is very foolish, whether it be the groping incident of Justin Trudeau or the SNC-Lavalin uh, scandal, you know, these things happen in developing countries, right? These are very foolish, and, and Canada should not be wasting its time with such issues. A prime minister should be bringing to the table serious matters of development, uh, not these uh, very childish and time-wasting issues that take the country several years backward and, and take a lot of time to heal. So that is my take on this issue. I believe Canada can do a lot better. And as soon as it's given the chance, we'll see Canada advance and escalate in a way never seen before. I want to ask you about, um, about respect for religion. And over the last number of decades, there has been, I think, a significant um, drop in, 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 in respect for or, or uh, religion and, and for people who are, in fact, r religious people. And, in fact, I, I have a friend who is very, very, very devout, and he is reluctant to mention that to anyone because he feels like he's going to be ridiculed. Given what we've experienced, and particularly in the last 72 hours and the emotional upheaval and the, the, um, the, the horror that's been experienced, the, we have to de redevelop a respect for religion and understand that places where congregants gather 
are places to be respected. Would you agree with that? And what's the what's the formula to get it done? Yes, I believe so. I believe that the places of worship should be out of balance completely, uh, simply because, uh, you know, let, let's take a look at it from a humanitarian perspective, uh, simply because the people inside there are completely defenseless. People inside a mosque or a church are always focused on their prayer, on their worship. They're not really in combat mode to even be able to defend themselves or even hide under a table or to make an, an escape in, uh, through an exit. And also, let's not forget, most of these uh, worship places and venues are very, very old and also heritage listed, which means you can't make any changes to them. And because of that, they don't really have uh, the necessary exit doors that, that you would find in a modern church or a modern mosque. These old venues don't have exit doors uh, like the modern ones do. So when, when a terrorist attacks a, a mosque that is old or a church that is old, uh, these people are not only defenseless, they really can't remove themselves from that danger. It's a very uh, cowardice way uh, to approach uh, people and target people who are in places of worship. And I believe that uh, if someone really believes that there's an invasion coming and that they want to protect their country and civilization, the best way to do it is to join the army and follow the law and protect your country the right way, uh, but not go and shoot people in, 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 in worship uh, buildings. Yeah. As for respect for religion, I think that uh, the respect for religion is declining, and I am a faith leader myself. I, I notice this because of the mosques that are being empty uh, every now and then and made redundant. I sit with other faith leaders from other religions, and they have the same view or, regarding their religion. And the reason is uh, the clerics themselves. I mean, just recently in Australia, we have... Imam, the, Imam I'm uh, sorry to interrupt you. I haven't even looked at the clock. We're actually over time here. And I apologize for that. I hope you'll come back, but I do have to have to end it here because it's the end of the program. But I thank you so much for your time as previously. Thank you for having me. Thanks so much. Raymond Hall is a former Air Canada captain. He's a lawyer. And Raymond, it's always good talking to you uh, in the sense that we find out information from you that I probably couldn't get anywhere else. Thank you very much, Roy. It's always a pleasure to be with you. We talk at difficult times. and. I think I know you can prov provide a perspective for, for all of us. Now, can I start with this, that the news reports indicate that the black boxes show clear similarities between the two Boeing 737 MAX crashes. What stands out to you? Well, the first thing is the information that came not from the black boxes, but from the uh, satellite system that you referred to just a couple of seconds ago. Uh, about 10 years ago, uh, the aircraft manufacturers started uh, programming the uh, uh, aircraft systems to constantly transmit uh, flight profile information, including airspeed position, vertical speed, uh, uh, and that sort of thing. So that type of information went out to the satellites, and it's, not, it's sent on an ongoing basis. Every few seconds, they, they send the information. That information becomes public information because it's a public database. And those uh, profiles from both the uh, Lion Air flight and the Egypt, uh, the Ethiopian Air flight, uh, were published by the uh, New York Times earlier this week. And what stands out in those profiles is the absolute erratic vertical uh, activity of the aircraft in the minutes after takeoff. Uh, rapid changes in vertical speed, climbs and descents of two to three thousand feet per minute, and rapid changes in altitude. Uh, and I've just uh, f found out that the Minister of Transport for Ethiopia has now confirmed from the flight data recorders and the cockpit voice recorders in, uh, that are being analyzed in Europe uh, that the recorders are both intact and the information is good and that the profile information that is being recovered from those recorders is consistent with the data that came out of the Lion Air uh, flight data recorders and cockpit voice recorders. Now, I know that the, the genesis of this whole issue really uh, has your attention. And so we look at the history of specific aircraft. And in this case, it's the Boeing 737 MAX. 
and we look at the derivative forms and why it is that manufacturers, and I'd like you to speak to this, please, why it is manufacturers seem to prefer to update designs they already have than starting new. Is that all? Is that about money? Is it about certification? Is it about pilot training? Is it about all three? I think it's about all three. Uh, the uh, process of getting an aircraft certified, the design of a brand new air aircraft, for example, is much more complicated and time-consuming uh, than it is to simply modify existing uh, systems because once the uh, systems have been proven already, it's easy to just make minor modifications and have those modifications uh, approved rather than designing and, and approving a whole, whole new aircraft. So uh, the manufacturers definitely prefer to just improve the quality and, and load carrying capacity, the, the range, uh, and the uh, ability to uh, hold passengers of the various aircraft. It's much cheaper for them, not just in terms of the actual cost of the certification, but certainly in pilot training. And a good example of that is the pilot training in the United States on the Boeing 737, 800 MAX, and 900 MAX, for example. Pilots at Northwest, uh, uh, sorry, sorry, American Airlines and Southwest Airlines we're required to take less than three hours of iPad training uh, on the 800 Max and the 900 uh, Max uh, to uh, be checked out as qualified. Simple iPad training, no simulators, no flight uh, uh, pro uh, engagement in, in flight, actual flight line flights. Just under three hours with American Airlines, it was 56 minutes of iPad training, and they were uh, assumed to be qualified to fly the aircraft. I was reading something about that, and uh, the American Airlines pilots, their union uh, representative, I believe, said they weren't trained on the MCAS system because Boeing said they didn't want to, quote, inundate, end quote, the pilots with information. There's a lot of difficulty with that, I, and I've read the same article, uh, Roy. There's a lot of difficulty with that, and, and the, the genesis of that comes, uh, leads to a, a series of other problems, uh, one of them being the outsourcing of the certification and training uh, requirements from the Federal uh, Aviation Authority in the United States to the actual aircraft manufacturers. This has been going on since 2009 as a result of the difficulty of the FAA with their budget constraints to be able to actually have proper oversight of the manufacturers and of the airlines. So they started outsourcing this uh, uh, training and uh, uh, involvement in, in certification to the ma aircraft manufacturers. It doesn't make any sense. Well, I mean, I mean it's just, just to the layperson. <laughs> you're, you're, you're telling the person who built the aircraft... We're now going to have the certification of your engineering prowess uh, handled by your colleague. That's correct. And the, uh, the FAA uh, individuals who certified the 800 MAX are employees of Boeing. Uh, uh, they're, in a, uh, uh, they're required to have an independent review of it, but it, in, it's been criticized as being the fox looking after the hen house. And, right. and sometimes that's come back to to haunt us, particularly with the actual oversight. Estimates are that the FAA is actually able to accomplish an oversight of only uh, less than 10% of the actual uh, certifications that are done in the uh, U.S. Uh, manufacturing industry. Raymond, let me just come back to the end, and I'll have to take a break and we'll continue. But no problem. Let me come back to the, uh, the question of, uh, of the training of the pilots, because I'm sure everybody is paying attention to, to what you said, and we've read so much and heard so much, but Three and a half hours on an iPad. In order, for, that, that's all they got. In, in as far as learning the systems of this, of this. That's right, and that would be plane. only for the pilots that were already checked out on the existing seven thirty right. seven eight hundred. Right. Right. But but it's a brand new navigation system, right? Uh, well, the software really. was brand new. The, the software that installed, it's called the uh, MCAS, Maneuvering right. Characteristics Augmentation System, and I'll, I'll give a little bit better of an explanation of that system. Let's start by re refreshing our memory. The reason the airlines and the manufacturers prefer to uh, change the models, to improve the models rather than throwing out the baby with the bathwater and starting a, a new, uh, entirely new airplane and, and, and fresh training is, is primarily cost and, and efficiency, the efficiency of actually having... Uh, pilots being able to train from one model to the other at, at very, very inexpensive rates. So the genesis of the 737 model uh, is 1968, uh, and 
you have to i think we have to remember that at that time uh if we put ourselves back there uh most of the airports that the 737 operated in it started in europe did not have loading bridges so the 737-100 the original version version had an actual set of air stairs that were able to be deployed from the uh from the uh front gate of the aircraft and the folding stairs came down and that enabled the aircraft to operate into uh, very small airports without the necessarily necessary ground facilities to be able to assist it the air stairs situation having ground boarding rather than loading bridges necessitated necessitated a design that put the aircraft fairly low to the ground and and that's the real key element here so the airplane was very very successful and thousands of copies of that airplane have been uh, manufactured over the, the intervening uh, years. As the uh, economy improved, Boeing attempted to uh, extend the capacity, extend the range, and, and increase the performance, the economic performance of the aircraft. So they extended the hull, but they didn't extend uh, the uh, the wing size so much other than strengthening it. So you've got the basic problem of this low-to-the-ground aircraft getting bigger engines, and the bigger engines don't necessarily have the clearance to the ground level that are that uh, would be required. Now, the original 737 had a 17-inch clearance from the bottom of the engine to the ground, and that, that minimum 17 inches was decided by the FAA to be absolutely necessary to in, to avoid the ingestion of foreign object debris from runways like gravel strips and rocks and, and that sort of thing. So the objective was to maintain that 17-inch clearance. As the engine size increased, they had to come to some sort of modifications to make sure that that clearance with the ground was maintained. In the 300 vo- model, which came out uh, about uh, 15 years ago, uh, what they did is they actually flattened the bottom of the engine nacelle, the actual cowling that goes around the engine. So it looked like a, the airplane had had a hard landing, but it was designed to main the clear- maintain the clearance with the ground. So then when we get to the 800 MAX, we need, we've got a much larger aircraft, uh, much heavier aircraft with uh, increased carrying capacity and big engines. The, the bigger engines obviously couldn't fit under the wing. So as a design mechanism, what Boeing decided to do with FAA concurrence was to lengthen the pylon, move the engines forward, and raise them higher above the ground. So as soon as you put a bigger engine at a different location on the aircraft, you wind up changing the flight profile. Now, if you think of the airplane a bit like a teeter-totter, when you have a long plank and somebody pushes just slightly at one end of it, you get a immense leverage effect. So putting the engine forward, putting the thrust on the engine, creates what's called a moment uh, in, in physics that causes a pitch-up action on the nose. When the engine is really far forward and you put immense thrust at that forward point, you get a pitching-up motion. Now, that pitching-up motion uh, could be sufficient to interfere with the actual airflow of the aircraft over the wings. Wings are absolutely necessary to generate lift, and if you obviously if you increase the angle, the pitch angle of the aircraft too much, there will not be enough airflow over the wings to allow the aircraft to maintain flight. This is called an aerodynamic stall. So the thrust, as I understand, when the plane takes off with those larger engines, uh, positionally changed on the on the aircraft, if I have this correctly, and they and they and they apply tremendous thrust, that causes the the the, the plane itself to to nose down. Is it? No, it causes it to pitch up because pitch the up, thrust okay. is pointed downward. It's a, the engine is located well forward of the center of gravity. So when right. you put the thrust pointed, the thrust is pointed down. It creates a teeter totter effect, which pitches the nose up. Okay, so and now the pilot, can you take us into the under the flight deck? So yeah. the so the pilot is taking off with the plane. Yes. And they have the reality that they're dealing with the plane, the plane's design, and the MCAS system, which we're finding out. Um, uh, we'll hear more from you about that in a minute. But they're dealing with that. So what's happening inside the, uh, on the flight deck? Normally, it shouldn't, uh, be, uh, there shouldn't be any adverse effect. The, the aircraft is designed to operate normally for takeoff with that kind of thrust. The, the problem is when uh, the sensors that tell you what the uh, angle of the airflow is are, are faulty, you, want, you get erroneous indications, and we'll get to that in a second. Sure, go ahead. I don't want to interrupt okay. you. 
but they, they designed the system. They said, okay, well, there's a real serious potential problem here. If the angle gets too high, uh, the, and, it, and it may come very quickly, the pilots not be, may not be able to react uh, sufficiently quickly enough to deal with it. So we're going to build into this software uh, the actual monitoring software of the airflow and the airspeed and, and the vertical uh, orientation of the aircraft. We're going to build into this software a control that actually pushes the nose down in the event that it gets too high. So normally that, that control, this augmentation system, would not be invoked because normally pilots wouldn't ever have occasion to do that. And on a normal takeoff, you would never experience it. And Boeing actually thought that it was pretty well transparent that, that pilots didn't even need to be advised that the system was in place. But in any event, they, they designed the system to be able to push the nose down. So, and the system was dependent, the way that they designed it, on two sensors that were located on the nose of the aircraft, one on the left of the aircraft and one on the right. And those sensors, they're called angle of attack indicators, fed into the computer system, and whenever the angle of attack by the sensor that was sending the information to the computer system said, you're too high, automatic input to the controls was made without the pilot's direction. So you've got a number of problems here. First of all, the way they designed it, and this has been referred to in some literature as a design flaw, Normally in aircraft operating systems and other systems, we have redundancies and we have reconciliation of discrepancies. In this system, the way Boeing designed it, the computer system received input from only one of the two angle of attack indicators at a time, and it based its action on the basis of the information it was receiving. It didn't check both of the angle of attack indicators and say, oh, I'm going to believe this one because other flight profile information indicates everything's normal. And so I should go with the one that's saying it's normal rather than the one that's saying it's not normal. So here you have a situation now where you've got a faulty, potentially faulty sensor giving you inaccurate information, and it's commanding the pitch down. And Boeing and FAA, <laughs> this is a really critical thing, they decided in certification of this aircraft that they didn't need to put this uh, information in the flight operations manual. They decided not to tell the pilots about it, that it even existed. In fact, the American pilots found out about it only after the Lion Air crash. They never even heard of uh, maneuvering characteristic augmentation system prior to the, to the crash. <laughs> so, so that's, just, that's just mind-boggling. It, it happened. And, and that, that design and certification system now is under congressional investigation in the United States. The head of the Department of Transportation Committee of the House of Representatives has said emphatically that he's going to review this. And now, this has been going on since, as I mentioned, 2009, where the oversight function of the FAA has been criticized as being inadequate. So, Let's go back to the airplane now. You've got a falsy sensor right after takeoff, in the first few minutes after takeoff, saying this airplane is pointed way too high in the sky. I'm going to push it down. The pilots don't know that there's an augmentation system. The natural reaction is to pull back on the control column, to take manual control of the aircraft and pull back. In the preliminary data that came out of the Lion Air crash, they indicated and I think it's only preliminary so far, I don't think there's been a final report on it, that both pilots using all of their force pulling back on the control columns was insufficient to overcome the manual inputs by the computer system to the airplane. They couldn't take control of it. What they should have been able to do was disconnect that system, but not even knowing it existed made it difficult to oh recognize my. the problem. Oh, my. Okay. Now, there are two switches that that will disable it there those are switches right in right by the pilot's knees on the center control pedestal of the aircraft they've been on airplanes since i started flying back in in the 70s it's they call runaway stabilizer cutout switches and you just flip the switch and that switches off the system but they didn't the problem was when you're 
after takeoff, you're perhaps at night, you're in stormy weather, you're not able to uh, see exactly what's happening, your first reaction is to pull back on the control column. And then you're locked, your, your hands are locked in the control column, and you're trying to overcome this, and you're not able to discern exactly what the problem is. So, so that's a, a serious problem, both with design of the system and with pilot training. If you're not alerted to it, if you're not trained on it, uh, the thing can get away from you. And particularly, you only have a few minutes to be able to deal with it because the system is going to take over and, and uh, put you out of the loop. Raymond, one of the questions that uh, comes to mind is, these planes have been in operation for a while now. Um, and Boeing, I guess, felt pressure to get them in the air because they were dealing with the Airbus and their new plane, and it's all about sales. I think there's 4,600 of these uh, Max uh, 737 Max on order. But a uh, question comes to mind: Is were there indicators? Were could there would there not have been instances where? this problem started to emerge and somehow they were able to handle it or something happened that the plane that the flight continued but wouldn't there have been instances where there was a a, a near miss with the system and wouldn't that have sparked interest and sparked investigation the only indication that I've seen that's reported is the flights of Lion Air of the same aircraft before the crash the incoming pilots reported sensors with the flight control uh, 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 discrepancies with the flight controls, okay. and they were signed off by the uh, the ground maintenance people. So uh, it, the problem that would appear is not a, an incremental problem. It's one. You there, Raymond? An okay. instrumentation that gives you incorrect information. So, Raymond, where where are we now? You've explained the a lot of the detail that. People are going to find very useful as they follow the story, but right. where are we now, and where is this going, and where ultimately will it end? Well, I think... Or do you think? It, it goes back into Boeing's court, uh, and I have to say that my information from Air Canada's employees and that sort of stuff is the airline is very understanding uh, of the pilot, uh, for the pilots, for the flight attendants, for and particularly the reservations for people, but especially for the passengers. They are doing everything they can to... Uh, to deal with this problem by rescheduling and adjusting. I know the uh, customer service lines have been extremely long and the, light, the waits on the phones have been extremely difficult, but, but the, airlines, the airlines are doing w- what they can, and, and it's really Boeing's problem. Uh, and, and the, so but is it, also, is it also a problem with the United States government if they have this very close relationship uh, between the government of the United States, and then you also told us, and we've been, we've been hearing this for the last little while, that you had Boeing essentially signing off, uh, Boeing engineers signing off on the certification of the plane there or other engineers built. That's correct. Yeah, it is definitely a, a, an interplay between the uh, oversight authority of the FAA and, and the manuf- aircraft manufacturer itself. So uh, the Boeing people, and they still say that the aircraft is safe, and, and they believe it for a number of different reasons. One, one is that they, I don't think that they actually took into uh, consideration the fact of having a single source of data information on those uh, sensors uh, might cause a problem. And if the sensor went wrong, uh, went, went south, that the, uh, that the aircraft would uh, be uncontrollable. The, they also believe that the pilots would be able to recognize the system and take over, which is fine. Uh, there are uh, procedure, emergency procedures that pilots are trained on when you've got uh, problems with a stabilizer, and you, can, uh, you, you follow through the procedure quickly, and you, you turn off the appropriate switches, and it can recon- reconcile the problem. You can recover with manual control of the f- there's actual wheels in the uh, flight deck that you can actually uh, turn to... Uh, to, to control the uh, horizontal stabilizer in the back of the aircraft. So Boeing believed, honestly, that that, that was, uh, if they had a problem, that it would be recognized. The problem that you have with that sort of assumption is you're dealing with not just uh, North American carriers with lots of experienced pilots. You're dealing with foreign carriers. Uh, training is in English almost all over the world, and a lot of these carriers are employing pilots with whose uh, first language is, is obviously not English. Uh, so, so you've got an issue there. You've got carriers that are in, in hiring pilots who have, like the first officer on the Ethiopian Airlines flight, had only 200 hours total time. You can't even get out of flight school in Canada with 200 hours time, let alone get a job as a 737 MAX driver. 
with that, that number of hours. So you've got those issues that Boeing and the FAA in, certifi- in certifying the aircraft, I think, didn't truly appreciate the significance of the decisions that they're making. Uh, and, and so, yes, it, what they need to do is, is reprogram the software. They say they, they're going to have effects available by the, first, uh, by the beginning of April. Uh, and uh, they'll obviously do flight testing and, and that sort of uh, thing, and I, and I do think they will fix it, uh, particularly uh, if they can establish some kind of redundancy and, and uh, computer correction uh, analysis to, to determine which of the sensors is right. And, 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 but what they really need to do is get the pilots trained properly to recognize the situation, especially after takeoff and, and in the worst kinds of situations, when you're taking off in bad weather or fog or at, at night and, that's, and that sort of thing. So that's the primary function, and I'm, I'm pretty confident that they, they will, uh, will uh, be able to do that and, and hopefully get it done. Boeing's had problems before with the certification. You probably remember the 787 had problems with the, the batteries. It's not the Dreamliner, right? The Dreamliner, yeah, right. Yeah. And they grounded that aircraft for several weeks and, until they actually redesigned the, the, the bays in which the batteries were held and, and uh, were able to diminish the, the heat buildups. And then the airplane went flying, and it's a great airplane. I love flying that, that airplane as a passenger. I wish I could fly it as a pilot again. So, so those things are going to be done, and, and I'm confident that, that they will get done. It may take uh, weeks uh, or months uh, to actually do it. And once they uh, actually acknowledge the problem <laughs> and start dealing with it, I'm, I'm comfortable in, in getting back on the airplane again. Well, uh, lots of lessons uh, learned here, uh, and, and I hope they're, they're, they're remembered and they're, they're properly applied including making sure that the pilots have the kind of training that they require. And to not know that a system actually, parts of a system exist if you're a pilot uh, and, you're, and you're flying passengers, that's, that's just, that's, you know, layperson, that's terrifying stuff. It's pretty scary. It is. I mean, I would, I'm sure that it's, a, it's an issue of great conversation and concern among the, the, the flying uh, community, among pilots. Raymond, you're, you're great. I thank you so much. Uh, there were so many questions. And, uh, and I've had emails all week long from listeners wanting to know what the situation is and how we can uh, understand what happened. And I, you've done a terrific job explaining what we need to know to, uh, to everybody across the country. Thank you so very much. Roy, can I leave you with the words of Sully Soldenberg on this? Oh, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. He, on his Facebook page, said, A cockpit crew must be a team of experts, not a captain and an apprentice. In extreme emergencies, when there is not time for discussion or for the captain to direct every action of the first officer, pilots must be able to intuitively know what to do to work together. They must be able to collaborate wordlessly. Some with, someone with only 200 hours would not know how to do that or even what to do. And Sully Sullenberger is the captain who brought that jet in on the Hudson River, which is still one of the most amazing things I've ever seen. Thank you, Raymond. Pleasure being with you. All the very best to you. I appreciate the time. Raymond Hall, lawyer now, was an Air Canada captain for many years. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Well, joining us on the program as he has in the past to Speak about this is Alan Sked, Professor Emeritus of the London School of Economics, the founder of UKIP, the political party which gave rise to the Brexit referendum. Professor Sked, uh, it sounds to me like there's a move afoot, and I'm, I, don't know, I don't know what's going to be better for the UK. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking that though that when people decide by referendum, binding referendum, they want something, it should be delivered. Well, I agree with you. That's the basis on which every British referendum, be it on Scottish or Welsh Home Rule or a mayor for London, has been decided so far. And uh, the Prime Minister, David Cameron, and all the people who are now against Brexit said at the time that, uh, of course, uh, the, the result would be implemented. And the government sent a pamphlet around every household in Britain giving that... Uh, pledge, uh, but now uh, a majority of members of parliament 
uh, including uh, leading uh, lights in the Tory party and the government, including the official opposition and the Labour Party, including the Lib Dems, uh, are now trying desperately to overturn Brexit. It, there will be a huge backlash if this happens, but um, there's no doubt about it that the, the majority in the House of Commons and in the House of Lords, and indeed the Speaker of the House of Commons, are now actively trying to uh, frustrate the will of the people. So what's on the table now? What are what are the options? Is 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 a hard Brexit on the 29th of March gone? No, uh, it hasn't gone yet. That remains <coughs> legally the default position if no alternative uh, I, I mean, unless that's changed by the government uh, and uh, unless there's an alternative plan, then on the 29th of March we leave. Uh, the government is in total disarray. Um, the, the, the Prime Minister has lost control of her cabinet cabinet colleagues vote against the government line or abstain. Uh, she herself has now changed her position for a long time, and she repeated this about a million times. She said uh, a bad deal, sorry, no deal was better than a bad deal. Now she's saying that she wants to rule out no deal altogether, and the deal that she has negotiated is quite atrocious. Uh, and most people sort of realize this. Um, but it's the only one on offer, and she's telling the House of Commons that if they don't vote for it, then there isn't any other deal, and Brexit will probably not happen. Um, but that still isn't 100% um, clear, because uh, she, she's asked for an, extens an extension because she thinks that she can get her deal passed the third time. Well, uh, it's still looking unlikely, uh, and the Chancellor of the Exchequer on television today said that unless she's sure that she's got the Democratic Unionist Party and uh, groups of rebel Tories uh, behind her now, that, uh, that, that the deal won't in fact be presented to Parliament a third time. There's also a constitutional question of whether you know you can keep on presenting the same thing to Parliament, the Speaker might just say, "No, there's no change. I don't see why we should." Vote so, but what, what's, ha what's, what's happened to the, uh, to, to the to the referendum vote? But what happened to that? Well, they're ignoring it. Um, uh, I mean, the, 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 as far as the majority of MPs, as far as the Lib Dems, the Labour Party, and a large part of the Conservative Party are concerned, um, the people didn't understand what they were voting for. Somehow they believe it's clear now that it will be a disaster. In other words, they're making up great scare stories and uh, they're believing their own propaganda. Well, uh, you, you know, you know, you know, don't you, Professor Sked, that uh, if if the hard Brexit were to take place, you know that the the, the royal family will be moved from from Buckingham Palace to an undisclosed <laughs> location that was found to be safe during the Cold War. You know that. Yeah, well, I, I would have thought that given that the royal family didn't move during Hitler's bombing of London, I don't suppose it's going to move just because of votes in the House of Commons. So let me ask you so this. No, no deal is a perfectly acceptable um, solution. We would just trade with the European Union uh, on WTO terms. So, uh, so, so, so no deal. Let's, let's, say there, let's say there's no deal. Mm -hmm. And on the 29th of, uh, of March, the UK... Uh, shakes hands, metaphorically, with the European Union, says, bye-bye, we're no longer a member of this group, we're now our own entity, we'll deal with you, as you just said, under the terms of the World Trade Organization, and we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll create economic uh, alliances with other parts of the world. We're, we're our own entity now, we're not, we're not playing ball with you anymore. Yeah, we'd be a normal self-governing democracy. But what I hear is, I hear all these uh, these disaster scenarios: no food in the in the grocery stores, no f no no uh, no pharma pharmaceuticals at the at the at the pharmacies, um, you know, riots in the streets. This is yeah. I, I know we were expecting the, the the deaths of the firstborn and biblical plagues and all sorts of things you believe remain as. But they're put they're pushing uh, they that right. The same, they made the same sort of predictions on the day of the referendum. They said that you know, 800,000 people would become unemployed, uh, the, the economy would collapse, house prices would collapse, and nothing like that happened. We've got record employment, uh, we've got better growth than the EU, and uh, house prices are going up again. I mean, I, I, I don't 
believe any of these scare stories, and neither do most of the British public. Professor Alan Sked is my guest from the London School of Economics, Professor Emeritus, the founder of UKIP, the political party which gave rise to the Brexit movement. No Alan Sked, no Brexit, no problems. It's all your fault, Professor Sked. You know that. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. Uh, well, <laughs> I, I, I don't think there'll be any problems. I think we'll just become a independent country again and um, have a very much more prosperous future outside the EU. So you see this happening, even though the politicians are saying it can't happen, she's not going to win win the vote the third time before the 20th, there's going to be no hard Brexit, we're going to have another referendum, or no no second referendum, but we'll have an election. We just heard Jeremy Corbyn say that. Well, that's one possibility. I mean, the thing is, if she um, brings the vote to Parliament and loses again, then we are in uncharted waters. If she brings it to Parliament and wins this time, then she'll ask for a short extension, after which we'll leave the European Union uh, under this dreadful agreement she signed. Why did, um, why, why did the U- I'm sorry to interrupt, but why did the UK want out of the European Union? Oh, because we want to become a normal democracy and run our own affairs. Just now, we have a system whereby we pay about 10 or 12 billion a year to unelected foreign bureaucrats who then make up laws designed apparently to ruin us. So uh, I don't think that's a very good way of doing things. And anyway, the, the, the European Union is now failing, obviously, economically, and uh, it's failing politically. I mean, it's got huge divisions between North and South, East and West, and unemployment is twice as high as, as it is in the United Kingdom. You've got 100,000, 300,000 people a year over the last five years desperately trying to get out of the EU to find jobs in Britain, which is record employment. And, you know, if it was the case you had 300,000 Brits trying to get to Europe to find a job, then, you know, I might think there's something in it. But (laughs) no, it's the other way about. And youth unemployment uh, in in places like Greece, Spain, France, Southern Europe, Italy... Uh, is between 20 and 40 percent. Uh, That's the all. Times, the Times uh, a couple of weeks ago had a headline saying that there were more jobs for British graduates than ever before. And the same daily figure on Paris had a headline saying there were three million young people without hope in France of ever finding a job. What happens if? What happens if the uh, the Remain side, which lost the referendum? and has been fighting against uh, Brexit ever since. What happens if they prevail? What do, the, what do the British people do? Do the British people stoically say, all right, so we'll have another election, which essentially will be a redo of the referendum, because that'll probably be the only issue that people will be voting well, for. Well, first of all, things will depend on what the European Union does, because if the Remainers uh, are going to get any chance of a different solution. They have to get the European Union to agree uh, to extend Brexit. Now, that means that 27 different countries plus the European Parliament all have to agree to extend Brexit. We don't know uh, whether they'll do that. We don't know on what terms they'll do it. Uh, they've said that, um, that they won't do it unless Britain comes up with a, an alternative plan uh, now, nobody has an alternative plan at present. The House of Commons can't agree on an alternative plan. And so the European Union might just say, well, sorry, you're leaving on the 29th of, of March as agreed. Um, and, uh, you know, everything's in flux just now. If we have an election, I, I can't see an election being called immediately because, you know, it's right at the same time as the deadline for Brexit. Mm. But if we had an election... Um, As things stand at present, um, the Labour Party is totally split. The Labour Party, in opinion polls, Mr Corbyn keeps asking for an election, but he's only got 31% in the opinion polls, and his party's split. MPs are deserting him. There's a new group in Parliament, mainly of former Labour MPs called the Independent Group. Well, they would like to run as a party. It's starting to sound like the Italian government. It's starting to sound like Italian governments. With all these, with all these splinter parties now. Well, the, the Tory party is split, and the yeah. Labour party is split. Is the and if, you've got really two different parties inside each label just now, so the whole thing is confused. If the UK leaves, if it were to happen, if hard Brexit does happen on the 29th mm. of March, say it happens, is that the end of the European Union? 
Well, I think the European Union is heading for a huge financial and economic crisis anyway. Um, If there's a world recession, then the bond markets will look at Italy, whose finances are precarious. Uh, If the Italian banks go, they'll probably be followed by the French and German banks. Uh, the euro, people will be coming in now of the euro. Um, and, you know, I think that the whole situation isn't looking very good. Germany's already more or less in recession. And uh, the German car industry is uh, a big employer. And it looks if Trump might put a 25% tariff on the export of German cars. Uh, they're not being able to sell cars to China in the numbers any longer. And if Trump and China have a deal to sell American cars to China. They'll <laughs> implement that. I can by see where you're going with that. German cars, Professor. I have and to, if, I have to stop, uh, but I because of the clock. But I, I do appreciate you coming on the air with us. It's going to be fascinating to watch what happens. Yeah, fascinating it, from this side of the Atlantic. You're living it. Uh, what happens between now and the and the end of and the end of March? Thank you so much for the time, as always. No, thank you for asking me, Professor Alan Sked from the London School of Economics. Professor Emeritus and the founder of UKIP. Richard Curland is a prominent immigration lawyer in Vancouver. Uh, Can Immigrate uh, is the name of the firm, eh, Richard? Yep. And um, he's uh, been an advisor to the federal and Quebec governments. I first first time I ever spoke to Richard was en français. That was, it was, that was an interesting experience because we were talking about Quebec immigration rules and regulations, and uh, Quebec has its own rules and regulations, of course. What does that say to you, Richard, those, those numbers from the Pew Research Center, putting Canada number one among 18 countries where they ask, do you believe that immigrants are, in fact, a benefit and a bonus and a plus to your country? Well, it's, it's expected. It's expected that Canada would make number one on feeling that immigrants make our country stronger because Canada realized the underlying economics and social value of immigration. And when we discovered the system may have been broken or may have had loopholes or may have had gaps, instead of shutting down immigration, we fixed the problem. And the, when I looked at the data, which is both U.S.-based and United Nations sourced, uh, the surprise was the outcome of having Canada number one at 68%. And we have developed a secret sauce, a secret recipe globally. The way it works today, which is different than other countries or Canada 10 years, 20 years ago, is that most of our immigrants are already people who have lived in Canada for years legally, working here, paying taxes here, studying here. That is our secret sauce. That is the pool uh, from which we select today's permanent residents. So no surprise to see, unlike countries like Russia, Italy, Greece, Hungary, that are dramatically opposed to immigration, believing they are a burden to their countries, that 60%, 74% Greece, 73% Hungary do not like immigrants. Why? Because they are seen as a drain. Newcomers flood in, draining public resources. By contrast, Canada, Australia, and our like-minded friends believe in careful screening, looking at who you are going to pick before giving them the candy, the permanent resident visa, ensuring that they are already here, already working, already paying taxes, and can afford to settle. In other words, cash in the bank or no visa. When you see those two significant differences on how you select immigrants, Take them as they flood across your border or watch them for years, make sure they have integrated and then give them permanent residence explains this outcome. 
Now, Richard, when we look at those numbers again, 68% of Canadian respondents in this Pew Research survey believe immigrants make the country stronger. 27% say that's not the case. I mean, that's a big number, 68%. Now, when it comes to the safe third country agreement, and again, the uh, the uh, global news story earlier in the week was the safe third country agreement, quote, no longer working as intended. That's a memo that was circulated between the United States and Canada. Then things become a little more, I don't want to use the word tense, but certainly issues are raised, questions are asked. And the uh, well, just reading from the story, just give me 10 seconds here. With the recent influx of asylum seekers to Canada, the safe third country agreement is no longer working as intended. The memo, which was prepared for the minister, Hudson, states, asylum seekers are evading the Canada-U.S. safe third country agreement by crossing into Canada between ports of entry where the agreement does not apply this has brought our attention to our attention gaps that may be creating a pull factor to people to cross illegally into Canada. So creating a, uh, a, a magnet, if you will, for people to enter the country illegally. The prime minister calls it irregular. Uh, we This is where people start to push back and say, wait a minute, we have this agreement, uh, we have rules, we have laws, and they shouldn't be circumvented or they shouldn't be set aside by a political party that just happens to be in power at the time. What do you say? Well, that's exactly right. Uh, and, and that may well explain the variation in people's feelings uh, in countries that cannot effectively control their borders, like Russia, uh, Italy, Hungary. Uh, and, and what else reasonably would you expect people to feel? When it comes to Canada, the United States, and that safe third country agreement, Two summers ago, three summers ago, even last summer to a degree, we did see uh, the Trump trampoline uh, take effect. In other words, we had irregular arrivals who circumvented the main border crossing points in order to seek uh, a, a temporary uh, status in Canada. Or permanent residence. Refugee status. Or permanent residence. The objective yeah, was to come to Canada, right? So and the numbers, the numbers, because the numbers were in uh, January and February, fifteen hundred and seventeen, and fifteen hundred and sixty-five, and then in March it was nineteen hundred and seventy, two thousand five hundred and sixty, and then eighteen hundred and sixty-nine. That's where people start to say, "Well, why isn't the government doing what it should be doing?" And that's enforcing the immigration regulations. And do you do you have a sense? You're the lawyer. You understand what's going on. Mm-hmm. Is the government is the government missing uh, missing out on responsibilities here? Actually, no. Uh, we're, we're taking in every year, pretty much since World War II, uh, between 24,000 and 30,000 of these quote-unquote irregular arrivals. And no matter how much money or technology you throw at this problem to seal it down to zero, you're never going to fix it. At best, you can manage it. The key is removal. You have people deported when the Canadian process ends. That's effective management, sends a clear signal to the rest of the world that says, okay, if you manage to make it here and you don't fit the rules, you're out. So don't bother trying if you think just because you physically arrive in Canada, you can stay here. And that's when we bump in to Prime Minister Trudeau's Twitter statement and so that you like to mention. Uh, that Canada basically is uh, a doormat, and we're not. So uh, in the result, uh, we have to allocate enforcement resources to ensure that these irregular arrivals are dealt with fairly, swiftly, and deported if they deserve to be deported. Yeah, because it's, an, it's, be it's, rule. it's an integral part to forming the overall national opinion on the issue of immigration, this, these all all these component parts eventually come out as a consensus view by individuals and as our society. Now, when, let me ask you one other question, and thank you for staying with us. Uh, when when somebody, uh, what's the usual? How am I going to put this to you? If, if if someone comes to you and says, "Mr. Curland, I really want to, I really want to move to Canada. I really want to live in Canada. I've researched the country. I think it's the right place to me." Uh, how? How significantly uh, is, is there, what's their desire level to come and live in oh, this country? High, 
it's high desire level, and I spend and a good chunk of the day saying, yeah, thanks for the compliment that uh, Canada is the best country in the world, and you want to pin your future to it, but you just don't fit our selection rules at the present time. And, and it comes as a great disappointment to people. But uh, it's not about those applicants, frankly. It's about what is in Canada's best interest, not the applicant's family's best interest, Canada's best interest. And that's how we've been governing our immigration system for pretty much the last eight, ten years. Well, there have been times when it's been uh, questionable, and I've, I've talked to people who've come to this country and and have pointed to others who've taken advantage of it. And, you know, it's, it's these it's anecdotal stories which also tend to, f- to form points of view. Now, what I found interesting, what you just said, and we have two minutes here, when you say it's part of the selection process, I'm sure most people don't know what, I don't, I don't, I don't know specifically what the selection process entails. What is it? Well, it's, <laughs> it has changed with technology. So now you have hiding off to the private sector, the heavy lifting of immigration selection decision-making. So your education, it's accredited by independent third parties. Uh, same for your language testing, independent third parties. And what happens is that Canada makes immigrants compete against one another. They fill a pool with 200,000 applicants, and here's the simple solution. Just lift out of that pool the top-scoring individuals. If you want 50,000, take the best 50,000-scoring people, you're in. The rest of you, maybe next time. Uh, so that has dramatically changed things because the way you claw your way to the top of that immigration pool is by working here, paying taxes, you get extra points. Studying here and get a Canadian degree, you get extra points. And that means we are getting the very best people. That's how Canada selects immigrants these days, which is radically different than from uh, 20, 30 years ago, where overseas you fill out a form, you're a doctor, you hope to be a doctor in Canada, you get your visa, and you find out you can practice medicine, but there's this taxi job ready for you. So uh, the integration failures of the past are gone, way gone, and uh, the new data that's coming out is going to shock because our new immigrants, the ones coming in over the last eight years and, and to present, are actually paying more taxes than people who were born here or who immigrated prior to 10 years ago. They are outperforming. So we, we, are gonna have, we are going to have to pick up this conversation again. I, I intend to, and I hope you will, and I thank you for the time today, my friend. Always an honor and a pleasure. Take Richard Curlin, canimmigrate.com. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.